grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Our public relation policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, film, and TV. We need guard with special care the anonymity of all AA members. In keeping with the 11th tradition, we respectfully request any member of the media who may be with us to please cooperate by using no last names or full-face pictures. I would like to announce that if anyone does want the tapes, would you please go over and see the tapers just as soon as you can where they can get them to you. Gee, this has been a great one, hasn't it? I hate to see it come to an end. I don't have any announcements. I wished I had the last report. Is Gracie wishing hear me? Gracie, can you give us the, the count that you know of the last count? Five sixteen registered. Fantastic. <clears throat> we will have it again next February. How about that? <clears throat> now, I would like to do, introduce to you our next chairperson, which is Mary H. of Arlington, Texas. Mary. Thank you, Sally. Good morning, everyone. Isn't this a beautiful day? I am Mary Hawkins from Arlington, Texas. Thank you. The Elanon family groups are a fellowship of relatives and friends of alcoholics who share their experience, strength, and hope in order to solve their common problems. We believe alcoholism is a family illness and that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Elanon is not allied with any sect denomination, political entity, organization, or institutions, does not engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any cause. There are no dues for membership. Al-Anon is self-supporting through its own voluntary contributions. <coughs> Al-Anon has but one purpose, to help the families of alcoholics. Um, we do this by practicing the 12 steps, by welcoming and giving comfort to families of alcoholics, and by giving understanding and encouragement to the alcoholic. Elanon tries to practice the same 12 steps that AA does. Number one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. 
Number nine, may direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Okay, suppose that we have a moment of silent meditation followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I'm sure you noticed on your programs that this says, Happiness is the second Al-Anon Conference, Texas Al-Anon Conference. And there have been many of us that have hoped for a Texas Al-Anon Conference, and so this is indeed a happy occasion for many of us. And today I would like to recognize a couple of people that have helped make this possible. And first of all, happiness is knowing someone like Gracie. Gracie has been our chairman for two years, and you can't believe what a great chairman she's been. And yet I know that you that have worked with her know how wonderful, what a wonderful Al-Anon she's been. So I'd like for Gracie to stand and us to give us her a welcome. And Okay, there have been many people who have worked on this, so I'm just going to briefly ask those other people who have worked on the committee and who are coming on as new committee to please stand. All of those who've been on the board and those who are coming on as new people on this committee. New chairman for the next two years. We don't have any bosses in Al-Anon, as you know. But this was suggested, this little lady has been suggested, and those who have young know her and know what a great worker she is in Al-Anon knows that we're going to have another successful uh, Al-Anon conference. So I'd like to introduce Patricia G. of Lubbock, Texas. And she has a co-worker, I'm sure, sitting next to her, Shirley. <laughs> You know, it's wonderful when you're in the program and you do have the support and love of an alcoholic. Happiness, of course, is being today, being here with, and all of us together. And I'm also grateful today and happy because this month my husband cel celebrated 17 years of sobriety, February the 8th. <laughs> you know, he always tells me that uh, I couldn't have been done all these things that I've been privileged to do in Al-Anon if he hadn't been an alcoholic. <laughs> so I guess I had to be grateful to him and happy that I have indeed been privileged to meet so many wonderful people in Al-Anon, to go so many places, and to enjoy myself as I am today. I do think you have to take the program 
one day at a time. And I have found that a good, strong Al-Anon group is the best support that you can have. Conferences are icing on the cake, but groups are what are really important. They really give you the program. So I think, you know, you take back to your group and share with them what you learn at a conference. But it's really the group that keeps Al-Anon and AA going. And to observe the traditions and the steps are what keeps the group going. Unity. And so that's what we want to have in Texas is unity. And that's what we're striving for. This conference is built on two assembly groups. And we do not mean to take away from any group. All we want to do is to make those groups and those assemblies stronger. Because then we come together here and we get to know each other. So I would like for you to be sure, if you're an Al-Anon or an AA, to attend your own assembly group this year. And I'm going to announce the dates of those. The West Texas Al-Anon Assembly will meet at the Kiva Inn in Abilene, Texas, June the 5th, 6th, 7th of 1981. And those who are you, of you who are a part of West Texas Al-Anon, I would like for you to be sure and mark that on your calendar and attend. Okay? East Texas Al-Anon Assembly will meet at the Fort Brown Motel in Brownsville, Texas, May the 15th, 16th, 17th, 1981. So mark that calendar if you're a part of the East Texas Assembly. And I do hope you will go. We want to make our assemblies and our delegates work easier and consequently the work of the World Service Office. I also want to thank all the speakers who have been here today because they have been dedicated, dedicated Alamans and an AA member. And I can't tell you how much we've enjoyed having them here with us. To the Browns, to all of the other people who have been a part of this program, we certainly want to thank you for coming and enriching our lives in this area. Today we have a speaker who's another Al-Anon. His name is Dick. He's from Minnesota. And he's been in the Al-Anon program for nine years. He's activities coordinator for his assembly area. And I'm always impressed when people take part in service. I know that they truly love the Al-Anon RA program if they give of their time. Because I think to really give, then you have to love the program. I want to keep in mind, and this is from today's reminder in our book, I want to keep, and this is George Washington's birthday. Did you know that? No? Yeah, it is too, isn't it? I want to keep in mind that the Al-Anon therapy is an interchange. The more help I give, the more I get. If I learn to be aware of others and I'm conscious of their reactions, the practice I get in this way will help me improve my relationships at home, too. And that's what the Al-Anon program really is, a growth of self and a growth of home relations. And I'd like to give you Dick from Minnesota, who is an active Al-Anon.
Hi, everybody. My name is Dick, and I am a grateful member of the Moorhead Friday Night Al-Anon Bunch. How are you? It's a real pleasure to be here. I'd like to thank the Texas Al-Anon Conference Committee for inviting me to share this morning. It is a privilege and an honor, and I thank you very much. And I've been treated real well since I got here. My golly, I'm going to get home, and I don't think people are going to be able to live with me. You've taken, uh, you've just spoiled the uh, daylights out of me. It's been really good. And Eva picked me up from the airport, and... And I've been taken to the nicest places around here to eat, and it's it's just been great. And I thank you very much for the experience, because it's one that I will not likely not forget. At least I hope I don't get uh, ungrateful enough to forget. You know, there's a story I heard just before I came down I'd like to share with you. It's about a fellow who had a drinking problem. And uh, during one of his drinking bouts, his good Al-Anon wife had taken his booze out, and she was pouring it all over her tomato plants. And he came out and he says, what in the world are you doing with my booze? And she says, well, I thought I'd grow some stewed tomatoes. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, he kind of blinked a few times and he shook his head. He says, you know, I'm really tempted to plant you, except with my luck, I'd probably get a bumper crop. You know? <laughs> oh, my. A bumper crop Alan on to surround you alcoholics. Huh? Yeah. Heck of a deal. We are asked to share what we are like, what happened, and what we're like today. And I guess my story would begin when I first experienced living problems, and that was about uh, 44 years ago, which is coincidentally when I was born, as far as I can figure. But uh, as far back as I can remember, I, I lived in a problem-drinking environment, and I can recall feeling unloved and unwanted and obviously very, very sorry for myself. I was scared and confused, angry, lonely, frustrated, feelings I'm sure all of you out there are all too familiar with. And there's a story I'd like to share with you that took place a long time ago that, that kind of indicates how long we can carry these things around. It took place back when I was about four or five years old. And during those first few years of my life, my father was employed with the Forestry Service, and as a result of that, we were generally located in some remote area somewhere away from everybody and everything, it seemed like. And, uh, however, in this one occasion, we moved to a little town by the name of Colville, which I believe is in the state of Washington someplace. And I was out in the backyard one day trying to find something to do, and I happened to look next door, and there was a kid there my own age. But, you know, he was a lot more than that to me, because this, this was about as cool a dude as I think I'd ever seen. This guy was really decked. He had himself a, a genuine cowboy hat with a cowboy vest and the shaps and the boots and the spurs and a spiffiest holster and gun set I think I'd ever seen. And I ran up to the fence and I said, Say, can I come on over and play? And he looked up and smiled and said, Sure you can, but you're going to have to have a cowboy hat and a cowboy gun. And I said, Yes, sir. And I zipped into the house. I was really honored that this guy, Mr. Cool, would invite me, of all people, to come on over there and play cowboys with him. So I got my little six-gun, and I poked it in my belt, and then I started to look for a hat. You know, I couldn't find a thing. You know, you've, you folks have got all these Texas-type hats, and I, I wanted one of those kind of hats. I tried my dad's hats on, and they all came down here to the end of my nose, and I was really getting pretty desperate. Well, then I walked by the bathroom, and I saw my solution, and that was my little tiny toilet seat that sat on top of the big toilet seat. Now... <laughs> My folks had bought me this thing because when I sit on the big one, I tended to fall in. And so this little toilet seat was to prevent those kind of accidents. I had a lot of problems with toilet seats when I was a kid. <laughs> and so I reasoned that uh, since I had almost white hair 
and naturally curly like it is now. I mean, he was straight. And it formed a little visor that defied gravity. And I, I reasoned that if I were to take this off-white toilet seat and put it on my head, you know, that it just might pass for the real thing. And I put it on, and, you know, it fit real snug. And uh, we had a little stool there in the bathroom, and I pulled it over, and I got up, and I looked, and I thought, well, you know, really doesn't look too bad. I mean, the brim's a little thick, but what the heck I think it'll do. So off I went to play cowboys with my new friend. And we're hippity-hopping there in the backyard, you know, as, as young cowboys will do, and all of a sudden this hat just bloop, right on down became my necklace. And, uh, so I reached down real quick like to get it back up where it belonged, and it just, it wouldn't come. And uh, so I pushed, and I pulled, and I tugged, and everything I could think of to get up, and the harder I'd try, the tighter this thing got. And, it, and the harder I'd try, of course, the harder this kid would laugh, and... and and uh, he was laughing so hard that, that tears started to kind of gather in his eyes, and tears began to gather in mine, too, but it wasn't from laughing. And finally, I was embarrassed and exasperated and angry, and I looked at him, and I said, Goodbye, and I don't ever want to see you again, and off I went home. And I remember that little trip home, I thought, Well, my mom's going to take care of this. She's going to make it all better. And I found my mother in the front room of our, our house, and... That was, must have been quite a sight because there stood her, well, pride and joy in his blue jean pants and his striped T-shirt and his silly toilet seat around his neck, <laughs> and which was more than she could stand, and she started to laugh, of course, and again, my attitude started to dip, and she finally came over uh, after I raised such a fuss and patted me on the head and said, now, there, there, Dickie, it, it's going to be okay, We're, we'll get this thing off of you, just relax, and so she started to try and take it off, well... After a time, her smile faded, and she looked down at me real serious-like, and she said, Son, I can't get this thing off of you. Hey, I don't know what we're going to do. Your, your dad isn't going to be home until quite late tonight. I think we're going to have to go to the CCC camp and see if those fellas can get it off. Well, you know, that isn't exactly what I wanted to hear, but when you're that age, your options are really quite limited. So off we went. And uh, when we got there, there were these three fellas playing cards. And uh, when I came through the door, I guess uh, I guess they th thought I'd really kind of made their day. They were about as funny a sight as they'd seen, they thought. I remember this one guy, he got up out of the chair, and he came over and he looked at my toilet seat for the longest time. <laughs> and he pointed at it finally. He says, where's the rest of it? You know. <laughs> I didn't think that was a bit funny. I'll tell you. But anyway, they, they finally got very serious uh, about my problem and and uh, sat down and tried to get this thing off of me. And I remember this one fellow real, real well. He was a guy who was facing me. His sweat was just pouring off his brow. He was really working hard trying to get that thing off. And he was the one that was finally able to ever so gently remove my toilet seat. And he walked my mother and myself back to the door. And, and he stooped down and he handed me my, my toilet seat. And he said, Son, when you get home, do me a big favor, would you? Would you have your mom explain to you which end goes into this thing? <laughs> but you see, I'd do whatever I would have to do and I would be whomever I would have to be in order to find your acceptance. And a good deal of my happiness seemed to depend upon my being successful at that. 
And it all was part of this thing that lived in your gut. And your lovely Gracie refers to that uh, very often as a football, which is pretty apt description. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how it got there. I didn't know why it was there. And I surely didn't know what to do about it. All I knew was that something was very, very wrong. And I didn't know how to deal with it. And as a part of this, there were a lot of things going on at that time in my life that I just didn't understand. I didn't understand things like the arguments that were going on in the house. You know, the, the yelling, the screaming, the throwing of things. And, and sometimes the outright physical violence that was a part of these arguments. And I remember being so frightened, so scared, that oftentimes I'd run into my bedroom and hide under my bed. Or, or sometimes I might go into the bathroom, close the door, turn on the water so I couldn't hear what was being said out there. Or other times I would go into my closet, close the door, creep back into the darkness and yell and scream at myself so I couldn't hear those angry words because I was scared. I was frightened. And I felt all alone. I felt like I was the only little boy in the whole world that was going through any of this. And I'm telling you this because these feelings started then and they didn't stop just simply because I grew up. They followed me all the way here to the doors of Alamon. Well, as I got a little bit older, I thought there was truly something I could do about my family's happiness. And so I accepted the responsibility for that. I would uh, do extra things around the house. I would be extra good around the house. Or I'd do extra well in school because I, I just convinced that if I do these things, my family would be happy. Well, obviously when this didn't work, I accepted the responsibility for having failed as well. I would have thoughts like... Uh, Oh, gosh, if I if I'd only said this or, or if I would have done that, everything would be okay. Or I'd have even more bizarre thoughts like, had I not even been born, everything would be all right. So what I eventually worked myself into was taking the responsibility for everything that was going wrong. It was somehow my fault that the family was having problems. didn't make sense, but I don't know what kind of insanity really does. Well, as it was no wonder that as I grew a little bit older that I would try and avoid the house as much as I could. I, I would stay after school for whatever reason I could find. Or uh, I would go over to a friend's house and stay there for as long as I possibly could to return home only long enough to eat and leave again if my parents would allow me to. And I believe this is where the pattern of running began for me. Because it seemed from that point on, from that time on, Whenever a problem became too complicated or, or a relationship too painful, I would simply turn and walk away. That was my solution. The feelings that I've been describing became more and more a part of my life and revealed themselves more and more in the things I was doing. The illness that brought me here had affected every relationship I ever had severely affected every relationship I ever had. And I'd like to underscore that word severely because there wasn't a healthy relationship in my life at the time I came to you. Certainly the relationship that I had with my mother and father was affected by my irrational behavior. Uh, the relationship I had with my sister, brother-in-law, niece and nephew was only allowed to continue because of their love and patience. And the relationship I had with my wives was absolutely disastrous. Just disastrous. I might point out here 
that I've been married three times. I guess I figured if you practiced at this thing enough times, you get good at it, you know. That didn't work. Um, I just wasn't responsible enough to handle a mature adult relationship like marriage. Just wasn't. You know, there's a story about the gal who was divorcing her husband, and during the trial, she testified that her husband was a traveling salesman, and as a result of that, he was, he was gone Monday through Friday. And then on Saturdays, he'd go out and he'd play golf all day, and when he'd get done, he'd go into the clubhouse and play cards all night. And he'd do the same thing on Sunday. And she says, I just never see this man at all. He is never at home. I never see him. And the judge looks over at this guy, and he says, well, fella, he says, what do you got to say for yourself? And the guy hesitated and then looked over at his ex-wife, and he says, well, what's her name's lion? You know. <laughs> and... I was no more responsible than that poor man. Again, I just I had very great difficulty in handling a mature adult relationship such as marriage. Now, my irrational behavior didn't stop with the relationships I've just mentioned. It extended into every area of my life, and certainly my role as a parent was affected. The relationship I had with my kids was not very good and, and it's hard for me to find anything humorous to share with you there because I just don't think it was uh, it was a lot of fun for any of us you see there were a lot of things going on in that house that I'm sure those kids just didn't understand things like the arguments you know the yelling the screaming and the throwing of things the very thing that just scared the living heck right out of me when I was a kid was what I actually perpetrated against my own children. And you know, I didn't even see it. I didn't even see it until I came here. And then when I, when I was aware of what was going on there, do you think I stopped? No. It took me a very long time to realize what love was all about. My kids, uh, they were afraid of me. Uh, they felt I was unapproachable, which I find rather ironic because I recall feeling the same way toward my non-alcoholic parent, who happened, by the way, to be my father. He and I just never really got along very well. We had an awful difficult time when I was growing up. I found it far more difficult to accept the things that he didn't said than the things that the problem-drinking parents said or did. As a matter of fact, the problem-drinking parent and myself got along pretty well pretty well. And the relationship I had with my own children was much the same. What I'm about to describe to you is called child abuse. Those two awful words that we all too often lay at the feet of the alcoholic. I'm not proud of it, but I did abuse my children. I abused them physically and I abused them emotionally. But I would like you to know that I didn't mean to. It wasn't something that I set out to do. I did it in the name of all the virtuous names. I tried. I wanted to be a good father. But you know, I didn't know how. I simply didn't know how. I didn't have the tools. And besides, I wasn't sane. There were a lot of things then that I didn't understand about children, about being a father or a husband. I didn't understand, for example, why the wife and I couldn't seem to get along. 
I didn't understand why the kids and I couldn't seem to get along. I didn't understand why there was so much drinking. I didn't understand why we didn't have any money or didn't seem to. Didn't understand why the neighbors and the relatives would, would oftentimes avoid us like the plague. I didn't understand why I hurt. I didn't understand why I wasn't happy. But I did know one thing. I knew somebody had to pay. Somebody had to pay because I'd been cheated, you see. And for some insane reason that I don't think I'll ever completely understand, it became the children. They were the ones that were going to pay. Now, this wasn't a conscious thought, but it was the way it worked out. It wasn't until I came here again that I was made aware of something that I thought was a real gem. And that was that these children are actually little people. That's right, they're little people. They laugh, they cry, they're happy, they're sad, just like you and I. And just like you and I, when we do something that's new to us, we'll make a few mistakes. And they're new at this business we call living. And when mine would make a mistake, I was right there to capitalize. And I would take them down into the basement. I would take off their pants. I would take off my belt and I'd whip them. All in the name of, of good fatherhood and sound discipline, of course. But I think you know what I was doing. I think I know what I was doing. I was striking out at something I just didn't understand at all. I was striking out at the ism, at all the things that just baffled me about living. And what I actually accomplished out of this was to drive a wedge between those, those kids and myself that only a miracle would ever remove. I abused my children emotionally, and one of the weapons I used was one of our favorites, sarcasm. And in our little book, One Day at a Time, it tells us that this word sarcasm is derived from the Greek word, which means to tear flesh. And dear God, how accurate that is, because that's exactly what I wanted to do, you see. I wanted to create pain. That's why I said what I did. That's why I did a lot of the things that I did. I don't know exactly why, I suppose, because I hurt. I, I don't really know. That's just the way it was. I work a great deal away from the home. I travel. And back in those days, I would leave on a Monday, bright and early, and I wouldn't return until Thursday evening. And I can recall many Thursday nights walking up the drive and listening to the kids inside the house laughing and generally having a good time. And then i get up to the door and I'd open it. And you know, it was just like somebody turned the volume off. It gets so quiet. And then one by one, these kids would file out of the room. Because they knew if they hung around at all, that they just might pay a very dear price, particularly if the alcoholic had done something that I didn't like. And they soon found that their best defense was their absence. Just simply get the heck out of there, much as I did when I was a boy. There was no communication in that house, partially because uh, I didn't know how. Again, it was here that I learned what communication was all about. It was actually made up of two parts. One is talking, and the second is listening. And if you lack either one or the other, you have no communication. It's real simple, but I didn't understand that. I didn't know how to listen. And more importantly, there was no love. 
I certainly couldn't serve as any example because I didn't know how to do that either. And that you had to teach me too. And that was here that I first saw this thing we call love in your caring and sharing with one another. Uh, that special kind of love, you know, that, that kind of love that will take you away from your dinner table and that nice warm plate of food to the telephone to talk to that suffering new member in Al-Anon, only to return to that same plate where the food's all cold. Or the kind of love that'll that'll take you out of bed just as you're ready to go to bed to the telephone to talk to perhaps even that same person that same night and to share with them your experience, strength, and hope. Or the kind of love that'll drag you out of bed at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning a nice warm bed to the telephone and to once again share with this person. I know a lot about that kind of love because I was the guy that was making those phone calls at those terrible hours. And you were always there. Nobody ever told me, call me back some other time. And I do appreciate that very much. So it was here, it was here that a lot of things began to start for me. Uh, new awarenesses became uh, easier for me to see. Things around our house just weren't very good. Uh, my kids referred to it as a war zone, and that's pretty, pretty accurate. It's pretty accurate. When I came to you, you told me that alcoholism was a family disease. Had no problem with that because it did seem to affect each and every one of us in our own way. As far as friends were concerned, when I came to you, I think the only friends I had was my sweet mother and my sister, brother-in-law, niece and nephew, and again, only because of their love and patience. Beyond that, I didn't have any friends when I came here. That requires a special kind of sharing that I just wasn't willing to do. I was, you know, wearing a mask. Uh, somebody had mentioned this last night, I think it was Betty. Mention this mask that we wear. I was so busy trying to be what I thought you wanted me to be. I wasn't about to let you see me as I was because I was convinced that if you knew me as I really was, you wouldn't like me. You wouldn't like me. And I didn't like to be uh, disliked like any of us. We all want to be accepted, and I wanted to be accepted. But I thought I had to be somebody else. And if you got too close... If you got too close, then I'd back away. I'd terminate the relationship. And you know, you don't make a lot of friends that way. Leastwise, I couldn't. As far as my job was concerned, I wasn't doing any better there. I wasn't getting along with the fellow employees. And I found it real tough to do even the simplest of jobs. Because I was so preoccupied by what might be going on at home. You know, uh, are they drinking? Uh, are they driving? How are the kids? That kind of thing. And I know my job was hanging on by a mere thread. It really was. And as far as a higher power was concerned at this point in my life, I didn't know about such things. I hadn't had a good deal of religious training as a boy, so the spiritual side of my life I, I didn't know a whole lot about. So I'd avoid it. Uh, I, I would try and pass it off as, as I was intellectual. You know, I was real smart. I was too smart for that nonsense. And so I would avoid it. And to top it all off, I didn't think I wanted to live anymore by the time I came to you. About uh, three or four months before I came to the program, I was sitting one night in the front room 
of her house watching television, and, and I believe it was a Bonanza show. I'm not real sure what it was, but it was a story about a, an old fella that had gone from the valley below up into the mountains to die. And he'd gone up there because, you know, the people down in the valley didn't appreciate him anymore. They'd never visit him. They sort of ignored him. And he just didn't feel like he was of any value at all. And I sat there in my big old reclining rocking chair and I thought to myself, you know, old man, I know exactly how you feel. People around here, you know, sure don't appreciate all the things that Mr. Wonderful does, you know. And so I'm typically, uh, you know, Alan on fashion, I bolted out of my chair and strode down the the hallway into the bedroom, threw open the closet doors, reached in, got my 22 rifle, got down on my knees and put the barrel right in my mouth. And you know the first thought I had? My golly, I can't do this. The barrel tastes awful, you know. <laughs> and besides, a guy could get hurt, you know. But, uh, I, I feel very fortunate because, uh, I tell you, if that, that barrel was chocolate flavored, I think I'd be in real trouble. But that's the way it was. As more time passed, of course, the idea of suicide became a lot more tr attractive. It became an escape mechanism for me. And I finally reached a point where I was pretty sure I could do it. As a matter of fact, I could not guarantee you on any given day that I wouldn't do it or that I might not hurt somebody else in the process. And you know, that's scary. At least it was for me because I think for the first time, that I can remember, I was concerned and scared <clears throat> not of something outside of myself, but of me, of me, and what I was capable of doing. It was right about this time that my higher power, whom, by the way, I shall continue here uh, from here on out to refer to as my God, brought Alan on into my life. And because it was about this time that my ex-wife was in a treatment center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And the psychiatrist in charge of that uh, particular unit got me aside one afternoon and he said, Dick, I do not want you to consider this a suggestion. We're having an Al-Anon meeting here tomorrow night. Be there. <laughs> and I thought, what are you talking to me that way for? I haven't done anything. It's my wife that's in, in treatment here. She's the one that's got all the problems. I'm holding everything together around the home, you know. I'm the model father. Well, I'll fix your wagon, Buster. I won't go. And so I didn't. Instead, what I did was I went to an open AA meeting for two overpowering reasons. One was, and not so overpowering, the fact that they were going to have an Al-Anon speaker there. And I thought that would be okay. The second and the real overpowering reason was the fact that it was located three or four blocks from my house. And that was what I thought was a good deal. That, that I wouldn't have to go in a lot of trouble. See, I wasn't going to go too far out of my way for this thing. Well, I got there about one minute to eight for an eight o'clock meeting. Uh, I didn't want to get there early, you see, because if I got there early, I might have to talk to somebody, and that's the last thing I wanted to do. And I tried to find myself a seat as far back as I could get without being conspicuous, of course. You see, I wanted to blend in, but I wanted to blend in in the back. You see, and if that, by the way, makes any of you folks there in the back row feel uncomfortable, I told that's fine. Uh, anyway, they had their meeting, and and it was a really it was a good meeting. I laughed a little bit. I don't remember a great deal about it, but I do know that I wasn't laughing much then, and and so anything that would produce that kind of an effect must have been okay. And just before they said their amens, 
I checked behind me to make sure the door was precisely where I remembered it to be. And they said their amens and closed their meeting. And boom, I was up out of that chair and through that door like a shot. Straight to the car, head down, you know. Went right straight to the car, went right straight home. When I got home, I was asked, well, how did it go? And I said, well, it, it went okay. It was, a, it was really a pretty good meeting and everything. But I said, you know something? Those people down there sure aren't very friendly. <laughs> I don't know what I, what I wanted you to do. I, I really don't. But something happened that night. I, I can't tell you what it was, but there was an attraction there because I did, from that point on, uh, go to a bona fide Al-Anon meeting. And I stumbled around for the next couple of years. I didn't do anything at all but attend meetings. And I'm grateful for that. Don't get me wrong. But I didn't read. I didn't talk much. And whatever I would share with you was a lie. So it, it was just simply I was going to meetings. And that's it. Well, one night I shuffled into what is now my, my home group. And I found a lot of people there that understood. People who had not forgotten what it's like to be a newcomer. You know, that feeling you carry through, you, through with you through those doors. And they understood that I was reaching out about as far as I was going to reach. And that was by simply attending a meeting. I wasn't going to do a thing else. You know, not one person came up to me and stuffed a phone number in my hand and said, Call me now, won't you, if things get going pretty tough for you? I'm not saying this is right. I'm just saying this is what happened. But I think they knew that I wasn't about to call anybody. They could give me 500 telephone numbers. I wasn't going to call a soul because I was macho. You know, and I tell you, it's just, it's incredible how, how well, how comfortable we get in our little pile of whatever you want to call it. <laughs> you know, it's incredible. But I wasn't willing to call anybody. However, a couple of people did come up and they asked for my telephone number and if it would be all right if they called me sometime during the next week. And you know, that made me feel awfully good because they did call. And it made me feel like they really cared. Now, I didn't do that too long. I want, I want to hesitate. I really want to get that across. That, that, they spoiled me just for about two or three weeks. After that, the rest was up to me. But in the beginning, there was somebody there with their hand extended. And that was important for me. Craig said the other day that he was loved for, through the first year. And that's exactly uh, as fitting a description as I could find, because that's, that's what happened. You gals did that for me, and I so very much appreciate it. Well, they had their meeting, and after the meeting, the lady sitting next to me didn't get up and politely excuse herself. She sat right there, and she shared with me how it was with her when she first came to Al-Anon. She talked about the fear and the anger and all the resentment and so on, and that black loneliness that accompanied her through those doors that first night. And then she began to talk a little bit about how it was with her and the kids when she first came to Al-Anon. And all of a sudden, I realized that I'd come home. For the very first time, I'd found somebody that understood. Somebody that cared enough to share with me how they really felt. It's like I'd found a... a place a refuge and an incredible feeling came over me that night that I don't think I'll ever forget and that was I knew that I never need be alone again
Because when I came to you, I was one lonely cookie. I was pretty lonesome. And you were there. Thank God for that. You know all she did, really? This sweet lady, she did what the older members in our literature suggest that she do. She shared her experience, strength, and hope. That's all. And her strength became my strength, and her hope, my hope. And she did this out of a, a special kind of love. We talk about it in our al closing, which says in effect and in part, you may not like all of us, but you'll come to love us in a special way, the same way we already love you. And that's what's kept, come, kept me coming back. I learn a lot. Boy, I've learned so much since I've come here and <laughs> have applied so little. But I'm trying, you know. When I came to you, you handed me a simple set of instructions. You said, do these things and your life will get better. And, of course, you were referring to the 12 steps. Do the do's in order to have the haves. And, you know, you were right. My life did get a lot better as I placed these steps in my life so that today they are my guide for living. Because when I came to you, you see, I didn't have any guide at all. I just sort of reacted to everything around me. Then you talked to me about sponsorship. And I... I could talk a very long time about it because I, I believe so much in it. It's been so much help to me. When I came to you, you said, uh, you know, uh, when you come through those doors, you're all, you're all full of fear and anger and you're lonesome and everything's just amplified to such a point that your life is all out of focus, all out of perspective. And that through sponsorship, you can sort through these things and bring your life back into focus. And that made pretty good sense. So I thought, well, okay, I'll go out and I'll select myself a sponsor. Now, by the way, bear in mind, I've, I've been in this program for two years. I didn't hear that before. It was said many times, but I didn't hear it. And so when I went out looking for a sponsor, I heard something else that you were saying. You said, stick with the winners. Stick with the winners. Well... I thought that must mean somebody who has had obvious success in applying the steps to their lives. So I'll look for that kind of a person because maybe they, in turn, can help me apply successfully those same steps in my life. Now, this isn't the way a lot of people do it, and I'm not suggesting you all go out, the, those of you who don't have sponsors, and do it that way. I, this is just the way I did it. I didn't look for somebody I had anything in common with. I, I just thought I'd, I'd stick with the winners, like you were saying. And that's what I found. A couple of people that I believe are walking examples of what this program's all about. They don't only talk the talk, they walk the walk, as somebody so very well put it. I've learned a lot from this experience. I've heard some things I haven't wanted to hear. And I've had to do some things that I haven't particularly wanted to do. But through that process... I've been able to make a little progress. And I believe that without sponsorship, my what little progress I have been able to enjoy would have been stunted. And I have a hunch the same applies to each and every one of us. That is, of course, my own opinion. And then you explained to me the importance of my program. You explained that my program is called Alanon. 
and it provides me with a spiritual path upon which I must tread if I'm going to find my kind of recovery. And I learned after a time that my program of Al-Anon could not afford to walk in the shadows of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't mean to sound disrespectful to AA. After all, if it wasn't for their loving generosity, we in Al-Anon would not have what we have today. And so I'll forever be grateful to our friends in AA for sharing this most wonderful, precious gift with us. But what I mean is that I cannot live as a parasite off of the quality sobriety of somebody else. Now, my lovely wife has allowed me permission to tell you that she is a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and a recovering alcoholic. When we got married, she was sober, going to meetings, and I thought, well, now this takes care of my problems, because every problem I ever had in my whole life is because somebody was drinking. Well, you know, after about two or three months of that, I was still getting angry over little tiny things. I was scared to death of what I didn't know. I was confused, and more important, I wasn't happy. And I thought, why is this? Well, the answer is pretty simple. I hadn't done anything about me, not a thing about me. You see, my happiness, my recovery was depending on somebody else, and that's a bunch of hogwash. My happiness, my recovery depends upon what I do, and it starts right here. And it was my program of Al-Anon that I must embrace if I'm going to find any kind of recovery. It took me a long, long time to understand that. But thank goodness I did. And again, that was one of the benefits of sponsorship. He also explained to me about choices. You said, you have a choice. I didn't realize we had a choice. And you said, yes, you do. You don't always have to be so angry. You don't always have to be so afraid. You don't have to be so confused. And you don't have to be so lonely. You have a choice. Well, I didn't realize I had a choice. You know, Margaret, in our, our favorite forums, the book, our book there, talks about a sign that's placed in front of a very bad-looking road up in our country in the North Woods. And this sign says simply, Choose your rut carefully, because you're going to be in it for the next 20 miles. You know. <laughs> I didn't realize we had such a choice, you know. When I was going to college, one of the fellows I worked with was a black guy who had, at best, a, a third-grade education. But he was probably the wisest man I've ever known, and certainly the happiest, and a man that I grew to love very, very much. And one, oh, he had so many gems. He, he just had so many. I wish, wish we had all kinds of time, because I'd, I'd like to share every one of them with you. And as far as I know, he wasn't a, a member in either one of the program or either one of the either AA or Al-Anon. But one day he was sharing with me how he would spend his weeks. Like on Mondays, when he get home from work, he and his wife would go over to the brother-in-law's and sister-in-law's house for supper and play a little cards. And Tuesday nights were always the nights that he'd go up to the park and play cards and shuffleboard with his old crony buddies. And Wednesday nights were prayer meeting nights and. And Thursday nights, uh, uh, Thursday nights he sort of hung around the house because that was the night his wife did, you know, special favors for him. Uh, Fridays were payday. And so Friday nights he and the wife would do their shopping and Saturdays uh, he spent tinkering around the house and Saturday nights he'd go out and play poker with the boys and Sundays were always spent at church. So when he got all done, I says, you know, Ed, it appears to me that you're in a rut. 
No, he just smiled and shook his head. He says, no, sir, I was in no rut. I was in the groove. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. And that's all it is, just a question of attitude. As I say, he was the happiest man I think I've ever known. He also taught me the importance of applying these steps to our lives. He taught me the importance of that by restoring relationships that I, I thought quite frankly, were destroyed completely. And the one I'm referring to specifically is the relationship that I had with my father, or I should say the lack of a relationship that I had with my father. As I mentioned to you before, he and I didn't get along very well, and during my parents' divorce, I wrote a very cruel and unfair letter to him that served to keep us apart for almost 20 years. And so when I came into this program and I finally got serious about applying these steps to my life, I did the same thing that a lot of you did. I was going to go through these things zingo, you know, right on through, just as quick as I could. And I got up to step H, which tells us we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. His name was prominently near the top of that list. Well, then I immediately ran into step nine, which tells us we made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And I thought, well, I'll take care of this matter right now. I went to the telephone, and I called him, and thank goodness nobody was home, because what I wanted to say went something like this. Hi, Dad, this is your son, Dick. Remember me? I'm involved in a program called Al-Anon, sort of a self-improvement program, and And as a part of this program, it's important that we make amends for anything what we may have done wrong. And so I'm just calling today uh, to apologize for anything I may have done wrong, whatever that could be. (laughs) Even though you're a rotten father and somebody I don't ever want to talk to again, goodbye. Boy, oh boy. It doesn't take a genius to figure out what the outcome of that kind of phone call. And as I say, I'm very, very thankful nobody was home because I think it would have been another 20 years. Well, I was talking to my sponsor about what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it. And it was very wisely suggested that perhaps I allow my God to provide the opportunity and the proper time. And it was to be about three years later, while in a motel in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, that all of a sudden I knew that now was the time. So I sat down and I wrote a letter. But you know, I had to write awful fast to keep up. So fast, as a matter of fact, that when I got done, I wasn't really too sure what I'd written. So I read it. And you know, it said exactly what I wanted it to say. Now, I know, and I think you know, that I I didn't author that letter. And I think I knew it that night because I just couldn't wait until the morning in order to mail it. I left that night, woke up the poor desk clerk in the motel, got a stamp, and and went to a post office box not too far from the motel and mailed it. Well, the results of that letter uh, I couldn't even begin to describe to you, so I'm not going to try real hard. Except to say that the relationship I enjoy with my father today is, is special. It really is. I love that man very much. I found in him a gentle, warm, intelligent, loving human being. 
And it's a relationship I cherish very, very much today. Well, about a year ago, in fact, just about a year to the day, we received a phone call and were informed that my father had cancer. And I thought, why? <laughs> After all this time, why now? We're just now getting things going. Why? And the thought that was sent to comfort me was that if it were not for the miracle of this program and the loving grace of an almighty God, I wouldn't have that relationship today. And you know that's true with everything in my life today. Everything. There is nothing that fills my life today that is not a result of this program, not a thing. I'd like to tell you very briefly about some of the things that are filling my life today. I remarried for a third time. Now, after that many times, that isn't something you're going to read about in your favorite newspaper, you know. But I, I'm excited about it. It's a big deal to me. We're going to celebrate uh, seven years this year. She's a marvelous lady. Wish she could have met her uh, down here. I think you'd have, you'd have really liked her. I refer to her as a diamond in the rough. She's a sweetheart. She really is. She is a dedicated wife and a devoted mother. And she's so patient. I Golly, I, I just sometimes marvel at her patience. I don't know how many times she said, you know, you folks have got a book called Living with an Alcoholic. I sure wish somebody would write a book on how to live with an Al-Anon. Uh, oh, it hasn't been easy on her, I'll tell you. Uh, God has really blessed me in allowing me to share a life with that lovely lady. And she has been truly a gift. And the relationship I have with my kids, my golly. You know that wedge that I was talking about? Through the miracle of this program and the grace of an almighty God, that's been removed. I uh, didn't bring my wallet with my pictures. <laughs> but if you ask me here later this afternoon, you'll only ask once. We have a lot of kids, uh, 12 to be exact. And if somebody would have told me 15 or 20 years ago this would be the number of kids in my life, I would have found a bridge and I would have jumped. I uh, would have jumped. My. But you know, I wouldn't change one little bit of that today. I sure do love those little guys. They have really filled my life. That's the center part. Uh, we can share things today that, by golly, we never could be, do before. Yeah, we just have a, a marvelous time together. Now, I don't want to stand up here and, and lead you to believe that we've got it all together around our house. You can't shove that many bodies under one roof and not have a couple of problems, you know. <laughs> but we have direction today that we never had before. And we can deal with those problems. And it And it just... It's nice because there's love in that house. There's love, and that's what makes a house a home. And as far as friends are concerned, golly, I've got more today than I ever dreamed was possible for a person to have. And you hear that a lot from the podium. And I guess the reason you do is because it's true. You know, Mary 
Alice, I believe, is her name, from Oklahoma. Ramona must know her. She was up to share with us uh, oh, a year or two ago, and she said, you know, in coming to a new area, it's not full of, of strangers, but rather friends that she hadn't met yet. And that's about right. I've sure made a, uh, made a lot of friends here since I've come. And how good it feels to sit down with some good friends and just be yourself. Throw away the mask and just be you and know it's okay. It's okay. They, they accept you for just who you are. And that's a nice feeling. And as far as my job is concerned, that's sure a lot better. I, I like what I'm doing. I like who I'm working with. It, it's, a, it's a good deal. And I'm sure they're a lot happier because at least I'm doing what I'm paid to do. And as far as a higher power is concerned, as I told you before, I had trouble there. And so I was referred to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, to specifically Bill's story. And for those of you who have read it, you'll recall that Bill was having a lot of difficulty in finding a higher power. And so his friend finally suggested that Bill choose his own concept of God, and Bill did. And it worked. And so Bill deduced from that that all he needs supply was the willingness, just the willingness, and that the rest would come. And I thought, well, golly, I can do that. I can supply that much. And so I was at a meeting not too long after that, and I was talking to a friend of mine about what I'd read. He just sort of made the off-the-wall comment that uh, sure are a lot of miracles here tonight. And I thought, that's it. That's it. This is where my God is. Because look at all the miracles. And so I thought, well, this is where I'm going to find my God. And you know, I saw my God that night. I saw my God in your eyes and, and behind your smiles. And I saw my God work in what you said and what you did. And I saw the power of my God pass before my very eyes, the miracles. And you know, for the very first time, I realized something and that was that my God had always been at my side. I just hadn't taken time to notice. When I came to you, I, I saw a lot of things that attracted me, but I think the one thing that I cherished the most was that special kind of love. It's incredible how selfless that love really is. And in closing, there's a story I'd like to share with you that's had a rather profound effect on my understanding of the word love. It concerns a lady by the name of Ruth. And whenever she was depressed and down, she'd go to the beach. And she'd sort of walk around and try and sort things out. And she was doing that this one morning, and she happened upon a little girl. The little girl's name was Wendy. Pretty little thing. She was only about six years old and just skinny as a rail. But she had the sparkliest blue eyes. They were blue like the sea, and her hair was, was brown like the sand. She was just a gorgeous thing. And everything was beautiful to that kid. Hey, just such a positive little girl. Nothing was bad. Everything was good. Every day was full of sunshine. And within minutes, the two of them were laughing and giggling and having a wonderful time. And, and Ruth had forgotten all about the problem that brought her to the beach that day. And as they were walking along, a, a sandpiper swooped down in front of them. And the little girl said, look, that's joy. 
And Ruth asked her what she meant, and the little girl explained while her mother told her that sandpipers bring us joy. Well, Ruth was to see this little girl only on a couple of other occasions. And the last time she saw her was when Ruth's mother had just died. And the little girl came running up to her and wrapped her tiny little legs, her arms around Ruth's legs and said, Hi, Mrs. P. And Ruth looked down at her. She says, Please, leave me alone. And the little girl stepped back. She says, What's wrong, Mrs. P.? And Ruth explained that her mother had just died and, and she just wanted to be left alone. And the little girl looked down and she said, Oh, that's bad. And Ruth turned and walked away, leaving the little girl standing there all by herself, not paying any attention at all to the fact that she looked so pale, so out of breath. She didn't look good at all. Well, about two weeks later, Ruth was feeling pretty badly about how she'd behaved, so she went back to the beach with the express purpose of apologizing to that little girl. Oh, when she got there, she couldn't find her. She looked all over for her. Well, little Wendy lived there on the beach with her mom and dad, and so she, Ruth, went up to, to the house and inquired of her young mother as to where the little girl might be. And she was told that Wendy had leukemia and died earlier that week. Ruth put her arms around that young mother, and she said, Oh, my God, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so very, very sorry. And the two wept for a time, and finally the, the young mother stepped back. and She said, You know, we, we so much appreciate the friendship that you and my daughter had. And it, we know how important it was to her. In fact, she made something for you, and she asked that I give it to you next time I saw you. And with that, she turned, and from the desk there in the house, she plucked a, a full sheet of paper that had been folded in half and handed it to Ruth. On the outside, it said, Mrs. P. And on the inside was a bright red sun, a light blue sky, a dark blue ocean with this brown bird. And at the bottom it said, a sandpiper to bring you joy. It was this little girl, only six years old, with those beautiful blue eyes and that hair that was brown like the sand, that brought to Ruth the most precious gift of all, love. Unqualified, unconditional love the same kind of unconditional, unqualified love that I received and so many of the rest of you have received when you came here. Because I was uh, noisy or I had a bad attitude or because I was too short or for any number of reasons, I was never asked to leave. Instead, you extended your hand and you said, Come. Let us show you something of how this works. And you led me down a path to a life that I, I just, I never dreamed was possible for me. This program works. And I love it. Because it's, quite frankly, saved me. I have a lot of joys. Twelve of them and a wonderful wife in a great little group. I know this thing works. It's worked in my life. When uh, my little girls 
approached me not too very long ago and grabbed me as I was about ready to leave the house. And Dad, you've been gone three, four nights this week. Don't be gone too long, because we miss you. Or my daughter last year got me aside and she said, Dad, I'm getting married in a few months. I'd like you to walk me down the aisle. Or, before I left to come down here, my little girl said, Daddy, I love you. That's the gift that this program has. And I know it works. I know it works. And I know that it can work for you, too, if you just let go and let it happen. Thank you. Happiness is coming to hear a speaker like Dick, who can share the program with us so beautifully. Would all the speakers stand again that have been here and shared with us their love for the Al-Anon and AA program? Let's give them all one more big hand. All the speakers, please. I have a set of lost car keys. I'll put them up here before we leave. A set of lost car keys. I'll leave them right here. Uh, we have not set a date, definite date for the third annual Al-Anon conference, but it will be in February next year, so you will be notified at your assemblies or through a letter. So we do hope you will plan to be with us at that time because we know you have received a lot this weekend. I have. It has brought a lot of happiness to me. Okay. Uh, I'm going to introduce one of the parts of happiness that means so much to me is friends. Friends like we make in Al-Anon NAA. And today, one of those special friends of mine is going to close the program. Susan. <laughs> My cup runneth over. I came here this weekend with a few uncertainties, a little confusion, and I've received some answers. I think we've all had an experience with each of the speakers and with each other, and we have found feelings within ourselves that I certainly cannot put into words. But just for a moment, why don't we go within and feel some of the feelings that you're feeling now. Just really feel them. And I know in one corner you're going to find peace and serenity, comfort. In another corner you're going to find love. And then in that other corner you're going to see the joy. You know, I, I told you last year that what I saw before me was a room filled with God, and it was probably the largest a cappella choir I had ever seen. 
And the only difference this year is that it is stronger, the God's the same, and it's larger. And so what I'd like to ask you to do now is to please stand. And when God created our, our universe, he allowed us to have this thing called music, and thus harmony. And I can't think of a, of a better way than to find the oneness with each other and with our loving God than to use our voices and to find that joy that Dick spoke of. So let's join together now and sing with joy our Lord's Prayer. Bless you all.